Good morning and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Uh, today I want to talk about um, the heroes from our uh, RPG stories and how the framing of those stories can affect the, uh, or the, the implied, I guess, um, consequences of the framing that we choose in it. Um, over the past little while, I well, there's a couple of things that, that got me thinking about this. Uh, for one, I, I received in the mail my uh, copy of the um, uh, Black Cube, the uh, Invisible Sun uh, kind of deluxe RPG thing, and I started diving into that. And one of the um, one of the things that was a bit of a that put me off, I guess, ordering it in the first place. It's really started to raise its head again. And, uh, I got thinking this weekend about why that was, you know, why is it that this is, is bugging me about it? I normally don't like to just put out uh, negative content. If, if, uh, I don't care for something, I'm, I'm happy to find something that I can enjoy, but I thought there was something productive that might be able to come out of this. And what I've kind of landed on is the, my issue with it is actually something that, uh, relates to how we frame stories and, uh, the decisions that we make. And I th- uh, in terms of how we set up the uh, the circumstances surrounding our our characters, and that I think has a a consequence, and I think there's some valuable, hopefully, some valuable insight that might come from from that in terms of uh, RPGs and, and uh, playing characters and so forth. So um, let's uh, let's dive into the episode. All right, so I got a bunch of uh, things I was thinking about and trying to figure the best way to start to structure this, but I want to talk about some of the influences or the things that that were kind of cooking around my brain when I was thinking about this framing of of, uh, heroes thing. Uh, For one, um, there's a really terrific podcast I listen to uh, called Very Bad Wizards, and it's by, um, I I can't remember their names, Uh, Tamler Summer, I think, is one of them, and uh, I can't remember the name of the other host or the other, but it's this really interesting podcast by um, one person is a uh, psychologist or I think a neuropsychologist and the other one is a philosopher and it's just um, it's at times I find that podcast is a little above my head uh, because I'm not my my background uh, prior for those who are regular listeners and uh, will uh, let me know I'm a a lawyer Um, but uh, I also have uh, two degrees in political science and uh, that's my you know background I have no background in philosophy or psychology or whatnot so at times those uh, conversations are a bit above my head Um, but I mean that that is the minority Uh, mostly they make it pretty accessible for non you know uh, non-field experts Uh, but one of the interesting comments they they made um, in a recent episode was talking about how everyone is the villain in someone's story you know how that uh, speaking to sort of like the the way that we are all you know um, slave to kind of the the limitations of our own perspective and the narrative that we kind of weave for ourselves around that perspective, uh, meaning that you know while we may be the heroes in some person's story or in our own story or whatnot too, everyone at some point is a villain in someone's story, you know. And uh, I thought that was really interesting uh, in terms of. Uh, you know, of course, my stupid brain, you know, tries to wrap anything through the gaming lens. And I immediately started thinking of like, oh, man, that's pretty interesting because you could do a you could use though that idea of everyone being a villain in someone's story as a way of constructing uh, a 
a subplot, you know, or even a main plot in relation to uh, our ongoing RPG campaigns. Um, and, uh, or alternatively, you could even run, you know, a, a, a one-shot with the players playing characters that are adverse to their other, to their main player characters, you know, characters who hate them. Um, I thought about doing that for my Starfinder campaign and uh, having, after having the player characters liberate this uh, planet from the um, clutches of the, uh, what do you call it, of the um, uh, Aeon uh, Empire, the Aslanti uh, Star Empire uh, troops, I thought about having them play as the troops at one point to, to put a humanized face on it. There's an old ep, uh, issue of uh, the Invisibles comic where, uh, and I think it might be the final issue or one of the final issues, I may have mentioned this in the podcast before, where basically it, um, Grant Morrison revisits a uh, like a nameless kind of stormtrooper type character who gets killed in the first issue by one of the main characters, by King Mob, and shows this whole complex and, you know, uh, intimate uh, depiction of this this person's life leading up to that, and I, I just love that issue. Uh, it's such an, it's such a bit of genius to, to humanize and make you empathize with all characters, you know, that there there isn't just uh, major characters or minor characters uh, in a platonic ideal sense where there is just, they are always and forever, you know, minor or major characters. Um, it's really just a matter of perspective. So that was one thing that got me thinking is the idea that we're heroes and, you know, uh, that perspective is what uh, affords the difference between a hero and a villain. And I mean, that, that maybe is too blanket of a statement to apply to real life. But I mean, for the purpose of our role playing games, that's, that's probably uh, true. Um, and then we have, uh, I, I was thinking about a conversation I had with some friends about the, uh, Zack Snyder's Man of Steel film. Um, the Man of Steel film, uh, that came out, what, 2008-ish, I think. Um, I, I loved it. Like, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the film. I know it's got tons of weaknesses in it. I know there's tons of, prob- not problematic, but there's just, there are, um, ways that they presented the character that are inconsistent with kind of Superman ideals. But for me, I never really, you know, I, I never liked, even as a kid, I didn't like the uh, the Donner Superman films. Uh, I, they just didn't appeal to me. I found uh, Superman to be smarmy. I found him to be, um, I don't know, just annoying. Like, I mean, I, I did not find him to be a likable character. And for me, you know, the... Uh, I I have enjoyed um, Superman comics for quite some, or had enjoyed them for quite some time, uh, from the time of the Crisis reboot right up until about um, the death of Superman. I guess is around the time when I kind of dropped out of those comics. Uh, but the uh, I so I like I like the character. The there are aspects of Man of Steel that I really love that felt to me. Uh, consistent with John Byrne's work on uh, on the character, and I, I loved his take on the character. It hit me right at the right time when I was a kid, and uh, it was you know a very very formative um, uh, what do you call it uh, formative version of, of the Man of Steel. And I totally understand if if uh, that version does not accord with what a lot of other people. I totally understand the hate that that film got. But the reason I bring it up is because I was talking to a friend who did hate it, who really had much more of a kind of Silver Age, altruistic, you know, uh, version or vision, I should say, of, uh, of Superman. 
And uh, he also had a, um, I think the uh, All-Star Superman, Grant Morrison's All-Star Superman, that really appealed more to him. And what I was saying is, well, you know, the, the reason, the problem with that kind of interpretation is that if the character is from this incredibly advanced civilization and who are all the good and noble people and blah, 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 um, then there's nothing, there's no agency in him being good. He's not choosing to be that. That's just his nature. So it's more interesting when the character has to learn and and do that. And the response was, well, you know, you sh- he shouldn't have to learn. He's Superman. He's he's just good. And, um, and that's just, you know, two different versions of a character that's 80 or 90 years old. So that's that's fine. Um, but uh, the, the thing in particular was the ending, the ending of that film. And spoilers for the 11-year-old film. Uh, but uh, the ending of the film where he... Maybe it's not in 2008. Maybe it was later. But anyway, the, uh, the ending where he uh, snaps Zod's neck... Uh, that really put my uh, my buddy off. He's like, this is just, Superman wouldn't do that. He'd find some other way. And what I was saying is, well, but I mean, look at the situation. The situation that he was in, he's just recently, you know, sort of embraced his powers. He's facing someone who is, you know, has had years and years and years of training as a military guy uh, who is suddenly like able to, to learn these powers and master things that took Clark forever to learn. So, you know, and uh, he put himself in that situation where it was going to be a death by cop kind of thing, where he put him in a, uh, you know, he could have zorched those people right away. He was just uh, tempting Clark into, into you know, breaking his neck. And I, uh, it also, you know, for me, it was a callback to one of those older John Byrne uh, issues where he, Superman had to do the same thing. You know, he had exposed some uh, Phantom Zone criminals to the, um, to three different kinds of, or two different kinds of kryptonite. Um, there was... Uh, gold kryptonites, which took away powers, and green kryptonite that killed them, and uh, he did that because he didn't the the idea that these Phantom Zone villains would escape and make their way to his universe. It's a very it was a very you know comics continuity heavy story, but in any event, what, the long and the short of it is is that Superman did kill in that, and then after that is where he's like never, never, never again. And I, for me, like I'm okay with with that story beat. Like I I, I get where you know, uh, the, the initial temptation is like, well, one life versus a billion, you know, like that's an easy calculus, but then for Clark to realize that, you know, the, the, by reducing any kind of life to, to a a matter of numbers, that's where it's wrong. All of life, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no numbers and no math that will justify murder or killing. And, um, for me, it's a more sympathetic character if he actually has to go through that and make that realization because he deals with stakes that, you know, the, most people will never deal with. But but anyway, but the, the, my, the reason I bring all this stuff up is because after I finished talking to my buddy, I started thinking about it and I'm like, well, you know, maybe my defense is not really a genuine defense because the only reason he has to kill those guys because that's the way Snyder set up that scenario. He set up the scenario so there was only one obvious choice for, uh, for uh, Clark. So if that's the case, then the only reason that was the obvious choice is because the creator conspired to put him in that place. And that, to me, took a little bit of the luster off of that because it's not really, you know, you're choosing to, uh, Snyder chose to make the story about that and chose to put him in a situation where he had no other option. And it's not even, or at least that character did not seem to think he had another option for it. And uh, that got me thinking about some of the ways uh, that other films have sort of set things up like that. Like in The Matrix, it's always bothered me that 
in the one of the intro sort of info dumps, um, Morpheus is telling Neo that, you know, every person who's still plugged into the Matrix is an enemy. Uh, and you've got to treat them as that. And for the context of the story, yeah, that, that sort of makes sense. And the way that it's the, the that world is presented through the lens of the camera and through the experiences of those characters, yeah, that makes sense. But it still means that there are innocents who are... They, that he just gave him license to murder. Um, and yeah, he's got a, a bigger goal. Uh, and there's you can use the argument that, well, there's casualties in war. But this is, to me, a little different than that. This isn't collateral damage, per se. This is giving you license to murder innocent people. And... There are a bunch of role-playing games from the 90s that kind of had that vibe and where it was, you know, your characters were a cut above the the normal, you know, the regular people and whatnot. And those are the World of Darkness games. A lot of those World of Darkness games had that vibe to it and had that particular um, assumption. And when I first read about Invisible Sun, that's what my concern was, is that it really read as being like, you know all these normal sleepers they're just going to be out there not knowing the real world but you know the real world you're special and uh i um i find that like uh, as a kid i i enjoyed that i, I kind of bought into that idea and, and it didn't bother me now there is a implied lack of empathy with that with the you know your fellow human beings that comes with that assumption that I really have issues with. I think that, uh, you know, when what you're doing is saying um, that your character is uh, objectively more important than other characters, and I don't mean just in a narrative context, like there's ways that, that mechanics can tell your characters that they're more important than others, like if, they're, if you have minion rules or your character has access to things like meta resources like hero points or action points or whatever that other characters do not, then in a way the games do tell you that, that you're a little special. But to expressly bake into the setting a, a, a assumption that your character is more important and your players know that, and the characters, more importantly, know that. Because the characters, presumably, in other games where you've got action points and whatever else, they don't know that they've got those things. You know, it's just a, it's a function of a, uh, it's a story mechanic that, that we use in our role-playing games. But in this game, people actually know, in a lot of those World of Darkness games, the characters know that they are a cut above. In the same way that, you know, Neo buys into what Morpheus says and, and says that, uh, I... Euro, it's okay to kill innocent people because they may be tools of the, um, you know, they're being used by the greater, you know, evil. And they don't, you know, skip a beat over that. And um, yeah, I don't know. So, you know, I may be thinking too much about the um, uh, the consequences of this and the assumptions of it. But this is the the... This is the trouble I, I I've had with this particular game, and, and maybe part of the reason why I'm I'm having difficulty getting back into the old World of Darkness games, you know, especially the the uh, 20th anniversary editions, uh, is that I have a different perspective on uh, how I want to see characters interacting with their wider world, um, you know non-empathetic characters and like I don't mean to say that all characters have to be, be like you know goody goody paladins or, or whatever but to implicitly tell a story where the only thing that matters is your character and their character's 
uh, and the character knows that, that they are a cut above. You know, it seems to me, as someone who grew up with comic books, that strikes me more of a supervillain kind of motivation than it does a superhero. You know, and I don't want to get too far down the well of, of like philosophical implications of good and evil and, and obligations and blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, at its most basic, you compare what superheroes and superhero role-playing is about, which is about, you know, an obligation to protect the masses and recognizing that, you know, with great power comes great responsibility versus your great power sets you above everyone, you know, which is what these other games are telling you. And what, and by in particular, what what uh, Invisible Sun and what you know these other sort of you know you are a cut above, you are a destined character, and that's kind of what I want to talk about is the the issues that I see with that because the decision that these game designers have made in setting up or creating their setting in that way that's a conscious decision. Uh, that, you know, this is not a matter of, uh, like, well, in the world, this is, you know, it's, it's not, uh, it's not something in the, um, uh, in the universe that is setting the, uh, or it's not playing contrary to the universe to set the characters about that above the, the average person, but by setting up your story to be that way, like there's no consequence, but for them to be these elitist you know, non-empathetic because you're telling the, the characters, the players, and as well as the characters, that the they are more important than the uh, the average uh, Joe, you know, or Jane. And I don't know, like I mean, that just doesn't. I mean, I imagine it's a, it, not. I imagine I know it's a matter of taste. Like this is strictly a matter of taste. But I don't get those same issues when I play fantasy role-playing games, you know, and. It's weird to me that a lot of these urban fantasy things where, like, classic fantasy, they, uh, you know, in a lot of cases, they've abandoned the idea, like the idea of the the, uh, chosen one and the destiny and blah, blah, and prophecy and whatnot. A lot of that stuff has been abandoned. Like, it's just, it's seen as old hat and it's not, it's it's seen as hacky. It's, you know, uh, a more modern version is, uh, more modern versions of fantasy seem to be driven by you know, uh, realistic, understandable human motivations. And then you compare that with some of these uh, fantasy role-playing games where they, like, lean well into these these fantasy tropes of, of uh, destiny and, and whatever. And, like, it's weird that, that, you know, that carries on in what's purported to be a more modern, you know, urban kind of... Uh, or Wayne Scott fantasy, if you prefer that term, uh, thing. It still clings to those really kind of outdated ideas of prophecy and, and you know, quote-unquote importance and, and whatnot. Like, it just, I don't know, it, it's uh, it's off-putting for me personally uh, because I prefer seeing my players play heroes, you know? I mean, I, I don't want, I don't think it's particularly interesting to be exploring these, well, that's not true. I mean, like, I think there there is a place for that stuff, but the fact that the game expressly tells you that your characters don't need to care about the average person because your characters are cut above. And I'm, I'm presenting the extreme, obviously, uh, argument of that. It doesn't tell you you can go out and kill, you know, the average person and whatnot. But, I mean, there is a implied under a, a implied consequence there that 
your character need not concern themselves with the people still in shadow or in, you know, behind the veil or who haven't been embraced and part of the kindred society or whatever your, your thing is. But that's, that doesn't have to be that way because I think of Mage, you know, the Mage the Ascension uh, from the World of Darkness games. And while your characters in that are objectively more, their soul is more powerful as far as reality goes. They can warp reality on an instantial basis. But, uh, and, and if you're not familiar with Mage, what, what it is, is the, the idea is that reality is consensus. Things work the way they do in reality, physical laws, whatever, uh, all those things, because that's the way most people believe. So there's partly, there is the idea that your character is important, but you are a single voice in a voice of billions. And that setting assumes that those collective voices of those other billions, those are very important. And that's who dictates what reality is. So you can fight a war for it and try and move those people, but you need those people to be able to shift the world towards your paradigm. And that is a much more positive and optimistic um, and, and I think a much more empathetic uh, underlying you know, structure for a story than what, you know, say Invisible Sun or some of these other ones do where you're, you're a set, you know, your character is set apart. And again, like those are decisions that you, that those designers made in setting up that particular world. They set it up so that there is an implied benefit, uh, to, uh, to empathy. And there is a, a reason that the, the story tells you why, uh, empathy for those faceless billions, why the empathy for them is important, as opposed to some of these other games where, like Invisible Sun, where you're, they're not. You know, the 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 quote unquote real world is is what's going on in your world, and that's the same thing with with the Matrix, I guess, as well, right? Is the the, the quote unquote real world versus the Matrix? That's the thing that's more important. So therefore, uh, the the assumption is is that uh, whatever happens to those people who are still in there. They don't know what's good for them. They want to be liberated. And while the story tells us they're right, that's a decision. That's a decision on the part of the creators of that story to, sh- to value um, release from the Matrix over uh, living the Matrix, you know. So, um, so that's a, I mean, that's a pretty lengthy uh, intro about where I'm coming from from this and, and sort of some basic ideas. You know, there's one other thing I'll, I'll talk about quickly in this section as well, and that is that um, in in relation to... The reason I, th- I thought this was important to talk about for gaming is because, you know, for people who are players, I think sometimes players will, will create a character and they will justify disrupting other aspects of play by virtue of saying, like, well, my character wouldn't wouldn't value this. And in the same way that setting up the story to tell you how empathetic your character needs to be for the wider world, or, or what, uh, you know, whether they're cut above and blah, 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 um, then there's also, you know, that, that is also a conscious decision. If your character, let's say you're playing D&D, and you decide to make a character who uh, objects to, I don't know, tomb robbing, or to, uh, you know, uh, taking things off the dead, or whatever... Um, if that is an implied part of the game, 
you know, is that that's what's going to be going on is, is you know, robbing tombs and, and dungeon delving and whatnot too. I mean, it's not a defense to say, well, I'm playing my character properly in any more than, you know, like playing a character who is a, um, who is a, uh, uh, thief, you know, who, 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 you know, or someone who, who, I don't know, may, may does, has some other value that dis, that can uh, intentionally disrupt things and make things more difficult for the other players. Now, there's degrees to, th- to this, obviously, where, you know, a little bit of party tension is good, but when what you're doing is setting up a character with values that uh, completely um, derail or run or, or make it really difficult for the other players to engage with the sort of assumed part of play... That's really, I mean, you can't, it's not a defense to say, well, this is me playing my character. This is the character, how he would go. Yeah, but you chose how that character was going to be set up. You knew that what the overall participation was, so you chose to make those decisions. Uh, And my recommendation is don't do that. Don't make a character uh, who, by virtue of how you've created the character, is intentionally going to be running contrary to what the rest of the party is doing. If everybody's on board with that, by all means, go nuts. But gaming is a collaborative endeavor, and you need to recognize that that's the case if you're making a character, so that the character run can... The, the way that the character um, has tension with other members of the party and with the wider world at whole, that adds fun to the... Uh, the overall experience, it doesn't disrupt or derail it from what the intended experience is going to be. And both of those, the reason I think these two things sort of link together is because both of those come down to the decisions you're making about framing that story, framing who the characters are and how they relate to the wider world and framing who the characters are you're playing and how they're going to uh, interact with the wider world. Um, I also think of the, there are ways of presenting that stuff in such a way so that it isn't disruptive. You know, like if anyone's ever played a, a game set in a, a world with a high, you know, strict uh, code of honor, like Pendragon or like, you know, the Code of Bushido, if you're playing Five Rings or playing Bushido or playing Sengoku or whatever, uh, the there are, you know, it may seem at first glance that, oh, this is a rigid thing and I got to follow it. But there are ways of squirreling or interpreting those codes to make it fun to play and still have a lot of agency with the character and have have good tension with the rest of the world as you're trying to follow or struggling to follow those rules. So um, I guess what my rambling kind of point here is for this first section or first segment is that all of these things, the the way that you're setting up your character, uh, you know, and and how they're gonna, what they're gonna value, what they're gonna pursue, what there will be no go zones for them. Uh, you need to be bearing in mind that you are not creating a character for the sake of creating a character. You're creating a character to play with other people in a collective storytelling, in, you know, in engagement. So you need to make sure that you're creating something that is adding fun, not being disruptive and and preventing or making it more challenging for the rest of the party uh, in, a, un, in an unfun way to pursue what is intended to be what that game is about. Um, and similarly, think about what... I think it's worth thinking about where you... You know, what the intended... what Not the intended, but what the 
consequences are of setting up characters as these precious, you know, uh, greater than others, you know, kind of um, position. What what the the I don't want to say moral because it's not that, but I mean what the empathetic consequences are. Do you want to be playing in a game where the characters will have, you know, uh, they have a story reason? The characters, not the players, the characters have a story reason for not being empathetic, for not, you know, feeling that they are one of of many people. They have a shared humanity with the other and a humanity. And if you're in a non-human setting, I'm including non-humans in that too, but a shared, you know, personhood, I guess, or humanity with the the rest of the sentients in the uh, or the living things in the uh, in that world. Are you setting up the story in such a way that your characters? are objectively better. They are different and above those other characters. And, you know, uh, I'm going to end this segment here. And uh, what I want to talk about is the difference in approach for, uh, for that type of world, you know, where the characters are above and are told or believe that they are better and bigger than, these, than the lesser beings, and then talk about superheroic role-playing. And uh, in particular, I want to talk about the aberrant uh, role-playing game because I think that it it actually does a good job of grappling with these issues um, within the context of the game world. So more on that in the next segment. Okay, so that was a pretty <laughs> pretty heavy section uh, dealing with or addressing sort of like what uh, where where my head has been for the past weekend uh, talking about or thinking about. Uh, the framing of stories and and what that sort of uh, sets up in terms of valuing uh, in um, you know for the for what valuing what the characters choose to do and um, and you know how they're going to interact with the wider world and in the course of thinking about that it actually got me back to um, a game that I had recently been uh, only recently been. Uh, been aware of and had been exploring, and that is the old uh, White Wolf game, Aberrant, or uh, from the uh, from the nineties. Uh, that particular game was uh, uh, presented as kind of it's part of a trilogy of uh, role playing games set in the far future, the present, and the past. And those three are Trinity, um, uh, Aberrant, and uh, Adventure. Um, I had I had earned or earned I had owned uh, Adventure in the past and and really loved it. I I never ran it, but I really loved the game and I loved sort of the some of the sensibilities in it. Uh, but I, I sort of like impulse bought uh, Aberrant recently, and um, I've always I've always been really interested in it. Partly because I just love superhero role playing games anyway, but also because it it uh, it seemed to have um, a it had it came out at the like end of the 90s the beginnings of the 2000s and it had a uh a very it had it was part of that like kind of postmodern take on superheroes where there was a bit of a um uh well not a bit of a quite a bit of deconstruction of them it was the second wave of deconstruction i think of superheroes because it um it wasn't part of the uh, the 80s stuff with like the um alan moore you know um frank miller kind of stuff it was more uh it seemed like it was in in response to some of the stuff that like warren ellis was doing and uh grant morrison was doing so it uh, it appealed to me i just never got into it but the thing i find really interesting about it is 
so it's set in the in the real world, in a quote unquote real world. Um, there isn't really a legacy of like costumed heroes prior to the emergence of superheroes at uh, following this one event. The space station kind of blows up, and then you know people develop powers, and you you find out over the course of the, the three games kind of what has happened and what triggered that uh, you know the emergence of powers. But the interesting thing is the idea of, of um, normal people, you know, who have, who develop powers. They become what, what are called novas. And then there's some, you know, the overuse of the powers or whatnot can lead to transformation of these people into something horrible, something clearly non-human. But the uh, one of the interesting things about it is, like a lot of White Wolf games, there's different factions uh, to which your character can ally themselves. And some of those, they have kind of like loose analogs to, to some, of the, uh, um, some of the things we see in comic books, but it's very much it's very much not a comic book game, you know, it is a game of, uh, of superheroes, uh, superheroes for sure, superpowered people, but it's not about, it's not a comic book game, you know, there are, uh, there, there are superheroes, uh, or characters with powers that are presented as superheroes, but they, uh, they're, they're connected to this sort of big organization and they're given an in-universe explanation as to why they are part of that, they're sort of like a superhuman, um, supremacist kind of league who feel that, that they are more than human, and um, and the thing I find really interesting about that particular game, in certainly in, in relation to what I've been thinking about over the past weekend or so, is that 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 particular game because it sets it it's it's not like the um, you know just the simple tension that you have in say X Men comic books where it's you know, a question of whether the special powers that mutants have um, means they have an obligation to, you know, protect, uh, you know, both other mutants and um, and normal humankind. Uh, do they have an obligation to only protect their own kind? Or are they superior to, to normal humans, you know, uh, by virtue of their powers and, and whatever? So instead, this is this is really like there is no question that they are genuinely... Uh, different from, you know, phys- genetically different, and they have uh, extra powers and they have abilities beyond what normal people can can uh, do, and they are physically and mentally transformed, or psychologically transformed at least, into other things if they use, you know, if those powers grow more, um, you know, the the source of the power grows more pronounced. So it, it's a really interesting, you know, it's an interesting setup. And instead of making a determination for why your characters are different or they're the same, that's part of what the drama of the story is. You know, it's part of the the interesting tension both between, um, you know, within the characters themselves, how they're going to, you know, view themselves in respect to the rest of the world. Are they part of it still? Are they apart? Are they different and apart from it, separate? Uh, or... I guess, yeah, using the phrasing apart and a part is a stupid part on my part. So anyway, um, but the, the thing is, is there's that. And there's also uh, that conflict, that tension of, am I human any longer? Um, what is my responsibility or my relationship with humans? Uh, like going forward, that is externalized in the form of some of these organizations. And uh, that's really fucking cool, you know? And um, I... I, I recognize that when I was, you know, when I was reading the book, but I don't think I appreciated how much that that might actually resonate with me as a DM, 
in terms of the stories I'd want to tell and how I would play up those themes. Um, so, you know, the, the, I guess the long and the short of it is, is while this thinking about how we're setting up stories, you know, um, informs some of the empathy for players, I, I wonder, I don't know, I think that there's something really interesting about that setup in Aberrant where you foist that onto the players. It's not the game telling you that you are, you know, you um, that you do have a, you know, uh, a reason to care about the wider world or it's telling you in the setting. And by you, I mean the character, not the player. Um, the, the characters know that they are separate and apart or the characters are something special and greater than you know, the, uh, the, the, the um, mundane people who make up the world. Aberrant really does an interesting job of, of letting the players, like, or the players and the characters explore what that question is. What is their actual place? Because there's no fate, there's no, you know, um, destiny that is, is being foisted on them as being separate and apart. They're not like chosen ones. They, they definitely have powers, but there is no grander scheme apart from that, you know? And, um, that's really, really interesting. And I think uh, I've had, um, uh, some difficulty since getting, uh, aberrant in, um, in June, I really had difficulty cracking that nut as to what, like how I'm actually going to run that. I, I keep falling back on old, superhero tropes, but I don't think that's what it is. I think that's what I should be doing is allowing the players and their characters to explore the question of what, you know, who they are now, what is their relationship with humanity? And you can do that, I think, in some really fun, personal and gamified kind of ways, you know, Um, and there's great ways to internalize and externalize that struggle. Um, you know, with uh, some of the organizations uh, representing the um, the what he calls the uh, that tension, serving as kind of like in-universe Greek choruses. So it's more. I mean, obviously, like a lot of that stuff is is not necessarily like gamified uh, in the sense of like having stats on it. But I mean, I think that that helps figure out how you're going to present those that that question of. Um, you know what? What? Uh, what is their role in the setting as it relates to humankind? How, you know, empathic uh, should they be towards the wider, uh, wider world? And and I mean that has been that tension of uh, are we human with our relationship to broader humanity? That's the thing that drove a good chunk of. Uh, I mean, obviously there's character stuff as well too, but a good chunk of that is the source of drama for Claremont's long, long run on X Men. So. So I think that's pretty interesting. I mean, um, while I I find it disquieting, uh, and, and it doesn't appeal to me to to you know run this run a, a setting where the uh, characters are just uh, expressly um, you know the quote unquote chosen ones who are separate and apart and who know the secrets separate and apart from broader humanity and know the secrets of uh, of uh, the wider world. Um, like, I mean, what I had said in the, in the previous section, uh, I kind of was dan- not dancing around, but I was kind of having difficulty articulating it. But um, I, I think there definitely is some great character work you can do, and there's some fun tension between the, uh, you know, the, the various 
uh, power players that are in these various settings, like the, the rivalry between the clans in Vampire the Masquerade is really interesting. The rivalry between the different, uh, you know, factions um, and uh, power players in Invisible Sun, I'm sure, is going to be, you know, could be a lot of interesting, a lot of, uh, of um, could be very interesting, a source of a lot of interesting uh, tension as well. But the the thing that I, I find off-putting about those ones is the express assumption that you are so much more precious and better by virtue of your character's standing, you know, or, or their, their, their innate abilities that they are just better, you know, uh, than the wider world. And I don't, or not better, but more important. I, I, I find that so off-putting in, in terms of uh, character design at this point in my life. Like I just, you know, when I was a, a kid, maybe like struggling with, you know, uh, senses of uh, identity and, and trying to figure out who I was as a person, I think that that maybe you know being told who you are that may have appealed more to me as a as a kid uh, than now as an adult. Where I don't know. I mean, I uh, I I don't. I find that that doesn't uh, being told you're a chosen one. That to me is not an empowering part of play. It feels creepy and uh, you know and and remarkably um, you know un. Uh, I mean, inhuman, uh, I guess, is, is probably the way. So, uh, you know, and that, and that is part of, I think, maybe the the, thing, the appeal of a game like Aberrant is where you get to dramatize that, that struggle, that struggle over the question of whether you are or not, because that is not, that to me is not objectionable. Seeing a character come to terms with that in, in the course of play where the, the character's relationship to humanity as a whole is an open question, and whether they choose to be a quote-unquote chosen one or not, that's much, much more interesting to me than uh, uh, than just than the setup of you being a quote-unquote chosen one, you know? Um, so, yeah, and I mean, I, I think a game like Scion, you know, where you're playing, if you're not familiar with that game, it's another White Wolf game from around the same period. It likewise deals with, you know, characters who have a, a legacy, but I, I don't think it necessarily sets you up as an agent of destiny. You know, there are clearly other things that have that same destiny. And I think that you do actually know, and, and in that game, there is another way that it connects you back to humanity. Belief from humanity is an important thing. Like, that's a source from broader humanity. Even though that they are lesser, you know, quote-unquote lesser beings, there's still an important role that they play in the cosmology of that world. So, Again, even though your quote-unquote chosen ones is still a little more palatable to me than just, you know, what the way it is in Invisible Sun and some other games where it is, um, you know, it you're, you're just but you know flat out just just quote-unquote chosen ones. It's kind of nauseating. And you know what? Uh, one other thing I was thinking about uh, over the course of the day, I've been recording this in uh, two different chunks here too. Is that it's you know this may just seem like me. Um, railing against specific sensibilities of, um, you know, uh, of how you're setting up your, your story and your cosmology in, uh, say like the matrix or, you know, invisible sun or whatever. And, and I mean, that may, there may be very well a, a great, you know, a kernel of truth to that. But the reason I wanted to record the, the podcast, uh, episode about this 
it's not just a vent my own perspective on uh, Invisible Sun. As I said at the outset of this episode, I want there to be something productive and constructive that comes from this. And I think the constructive component is, even though like the setup for Invisible Sun, the way that it's presented in the in the default material, and in some of those '90s games where you know you're just um, your character is a cut above. You know, the character knows that they are different and, and better and superior to uh, regular humankind or the, the chattel of humankind. Um, I, uh, I, it's not... I think what, what I, I hope to, that can be drawn from this kind of, dry, you know, extended <laughs> analysis of how those stories are set up is just to, that it's, it's worthwhile turning your mind to what that, you know, what those... Um, setting uh, rules, what what those assumptions and what those uh, elements of your story set up, what they mean about your uh, your characters or your heroes' relationship to their wider world. You know, uh, if in your standard D and D game there is no assumption made, I don't think about what your character's relationship is to the wider world, you know, I mean, I think that a lot of, I mean, yes, most people will be playing quote-unquote good, you know, characters, um, which means that they are altruistic and they want to save people, but, you know, I mean, as many also play mercenary characters where they're really, they're not feeling, you know, a specific relationship uh, to their, um, to the wider world and wider humanity in their, in their game setting, um, one way or the other, they're not, they are not more empathetic, they are not less empathetic, but what the game doesn't tell you is that your characters for some in setting are different and apart from humanity. They aren't demigods or they aren't, you know, um, what do you call it? They aren't, uh, uh, Nephilim. They aren't some different species, different breed apart from the rest of humanity. Um, whereas some of these other games do that. And I don't think that they, they do so, or the, the implied consequence of doing it that way means that they are separate and apart and they don't need to care about the wider humanity. And I think that that's fine if that's what you want to do, but just don't expect those characters to necessarily, or the players of those characters to necessarily empathize with wider humanity. And the reason being is because the game tells them in the setting that they are something apart and bigger than what those smaller humans are and I think that those personal touches those small touches uh, you know those connections to smaller humanity those are the things that make a lot of those you know um, those urban fantasy games or stories uh, make them so or the ones that really do resonate the ones that that do you know um carry some meaningful connection or the ones that do care about those small people, those little people. Uh, the Matrix, you know, tells us that outside don't care about those people who are, who are plugged in. They're, you know, um, uh, they, don't, uh, they don't matter. But I mean, the whole arc of that, that, whole, uh, that whole trilogy, you know, it really comes down to, uh, you know, Neo um, cares so much about uh, Trinity throughout this. It's, it's her love that you know, in connection with the individual person that really kind of carries a lot of that, uh, the second two stories together. Or even the first one, the first one is, is Trinity's connection with the one individual person, you know, uh, is the thing that, that carries, uh, that, that is the turning point in that first story. 
so and and she's nothing special you know there's nothing that about the game the the game the film that tells us that she is special in the first place in the sense of being a quote-unquote chosen one she just you know and and i don't think she acts that way throughout most of the uh uh the first film in particular anyway i'm getting lost in some unformed thoughts about uh, the matrix but i guess my 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 point being the reason i i want to talk about aberrant and the reason i mentioned mage earlier on is that i think that you know, for myself, those are the things that um, I'm interested in exploring in my games is the connection, you know, is how the, I mentioned in the, in the first section here that I want my players to play heroes. And it's not necessarily that I want them to necessarily play heroes. I want them to have a meaningful connection of, in those story-based games where, you know, I'm there, the, the role-playing element is a lot more prominent um, and interacting with the wider world is a little more prominent uh, in that than it is in like your average D and D game. The, the average D and D or Pathfinder game is going to have a lot of like dungeon delves and stuff like that. Uh, my Barrow Maze game is is mostly you know uh, it's a lot not mostly but a lot of combat uh, with uh, some uh, role playing and problem solving and stuff in there. But a lot of that stuff is it's I mean there is an overarching story reason for why all that stuff's happening. But that's what a lot of the game is. You contrast that with games like um, Vampire the Masquerade or you know uh, any any of the other White Wolf games. Those are a, it's a lot of role playing. There is maybe some combat in there as well too, but it's a lot of role playing stuff and uh, exploration and dealing with you know your character interacting with that world. And because so much of that's going to be there, you know the decisions you make as to how to frame the character's position that's what dictates what you're defining as a hero is the hero someone who's going to go through an intensely personal exploration which i think is the case with um you know invisible sun or with uh, vampire where your the game tells you that you and the characters are aware that they are separate and apart from uh normal humanity and then they you know there are consequences that uh, that flow from that um or you're going to play a game where the or set up your story in such a way that the that humanity um, matters. You know, humanity matters in the sense that they, the the success, failure, the um, the beliefs, the dreams of those smaller characters do they matter in your game? You know, do you want to explore or embrace the idea that um, that Morrison did in that Invisibles are, uh, uh, issue that I mentioned before, where we get to see that, you know, yeah, the, in the at initial blush, we just saw this person as a nameless minion who goes down as, as many, you know, hundreds of, of them go down before our, our protagonist. Um, do you want to include in your game the, the dreams and the story of those characters? Um, you know, that's a decision for you. For, for me, obviously, I mean, the I, I am interested in exploring that. I am interested in the players having a connection with those little people um, in those types of games. Or at least having the players grapple with that and, and their characters in particular grapple with that, with what their position is. You know, the, the in the course of going through this episode and listening to the first section again and, and thinking about how to conclude this, what I can say is that I think this has also helped me not only figure out what I want to do with a Baron, but also what I want to do with Mage. You know, I think that I've been... I get lost with the grand you know picture the, the the big scope of the battle for reality that comes with mage and i think rather than all of reality you know a nice small story 
about, say, a small town, you know, uh, and the mages that, that are there and their interaction with the people there and, uh, and how they're trying to shape their hopes and dreams and whatnot. That might be a really interesting story to explore. Particularly, I mean, we would need to have uh, mages who would have um, clear, you know, clear motivations as to what they want out of the, of the world. And by that, I mean, like, how they want to shape the world to fit their... Uh, their views, whether they want to inflict that on other people, whether they want to bring them along, and then what beliefs about the world that the the NPC, the normal inhabitants of that that town have too. That might be really interesting. Um, I'll have to give it some, put some uh, thoughts down to paper. And then for the uh, aberrant as well too, that really definitely gave me some ideas of where to go with that, is setting up the question of, of what the player's what the characters, I should say, the player characters, what they are going to to do with their world. How how will they um, relate to the world now that they have become something different from human? You know, are they the chosen ones, as as some of them, some of the world will tell them, where they are destined to be apart from humanity? They're destined to maybe lord over them, uh, or are they humans who just have different capabilities now, and that that link back to humanity is still there. So, I don't know. And interesting, I mean, for, for me, um, again, I guess to conclude here, this really all does come back down to a matter of taste, whether it's it's to your sensibilities or not, how you, you know, whether, as I said, I mean, like, it's clear from the course of my life, there's been times when that has spoken to me more than it does now. It just, it, it doesn't right now. That kind of chosen one stuff really it doesn't appeal to me it doesn't that's not the the stories i'm interested in telling right now but if your sensibilities lie towards that then that's the this you know at the very least what you would get out of a uh consideration over what the framing of your story tells you you know the framing of man of steel told us that superman could only you know or clark could only respond by breaking Zod's neck. That was the only viable option within that story. Um, the story in the Matrix tells us that the people who are hooked into the Matrix, um, they are enemies because they, you know, they they are not able to make the decision of seeing who they, um, you know, what what the conditions they're in and and how to free themselves and blah blah blah. Um, if at the very least, what you've taken away from this whole episode is to consider what your structuring of what the characters know about themselves and their relationship to broader humanity that at least can make your decision uh, can make you aware of what I don't know what what implied empathy they'll have with wider humanity and then in respect to the individual characters what their beliefs will tell you uh, or how they will relate to the overall goal of having a fun shared story exercise um, and whether you are, uh, your, any decisions you're making with respect to your character's beliefs, whether the tension it's creating is going to the point of disrupting the actual overall shared goal of play, or whether it's just adding on some fun tension to the, uh, to the mix. And I mean, part of that, again, like I mentioned about the, the Code of Bushido and, and uh, Code of Chivalry, you can find ways to still be true to those characters, but interpret their actions and beliefs in a fun way. You know, um, for instance, you know, if, if a character is, uh, doesn't agree with looting a tomb, say, you know, or, or taking things off the dead, well, what you could also say is that, you know, knowing that the allies would go along with it rather than just, you know, um, 
set themselves against that go along to make sure that there is an ethical looting. You know, go along with them and, and uh, go al- and, and as the players are taking things, you know, you can have your character role play with the other characters about what what is an ethical and not ethical way of you know um, of looting that tomb. Or you know, they could go along and and role play out how they're harping at the the player character, the other player characters about um, you know. Doing some kind of ablutions to prevent the 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 dead from be raising as unquiet dead after the looting. So, anyway, I mean, um, that's a really th- this particular episode I realize has gone is maybe could be seen as all, an awful lot of navel gazing. But I hope that there has been something useful that you've taken away from this episode, um, even in just looking at the the broader you know structures of how you are constructing the the overarching story for your your RPG campaigns. Um, I know it's been helpful for me, uh, at least in terms of those two games. So, so that's that. Let's make our way to the outro. All right, so that's another episode up, another episode down. Um, the as always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding the uh, episode, uh, this one in particular. I mean, it's so much of this is uh, is a very personal perspective on uh, and and filled with my own preferences. So I imagine that you know uh, mileage may uh, vary. Uh, for a lot of folks on on my uh, positions on this, but um, you know, um, a diversity of opinions is, is what makes life interesting. So, if you do have any thoughts or um, if any uh, you know different perspectives on on uh, any of the games I talked about or the assumptions that I think that they make, I, I'd love to hear from you. Um, you can uh, of course leave me a message on Anchor. Uh, you can uh, reach me on Twitter at Dungeon Musings. Uh, you can. Um, Find me on the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel, of course. Uh, You can find me by email at dungeonmusings at gmail.com. And we actually have a Discord server now for the uh, Dungeon Musings uh, community. So if you go to the uh, Dungeon Musings YouTube page, um, you can find uh, links to the uh, Discord uh, channel on any of the recent videos. It will be included in all of those. So you can join us and chat about um, RPGs on a... Well, to be honest, now it's a daily basis. So... Um, anyway, otherwise, I uh, thank you so much for listening. Um, and until next time, happy gaming.